Just for a moment, imagine your community became another Ferguson, or Minneapolis, or Louisville, or any American community where police killed African Americans under questionable circumstances. How would you react? How would your city react? How would your government react? These are the questions that we will explore in the coming weeks in Color Lines, from Philip to Floyd, a podcast exploring the American tragedy of race, police shootings, and the search for justice. As we continue on our journey, exploring how policing policies play a role in these deaths, have these institutions changed in 30 years? Have hiring practices progressed with the changes of our country? Or is this one institution that operates with impunity? There was one institution that didn't change very much, and that was the police department. And when Philip was killed, there were roughly 100 officers in the police department, and only about five of them were black or Latino. And so it was a mostly white police department. And, and like many police departments, they have a very insular way of handling their officers. So when one of their officers does something wrong, the rest of the town doesn't know about it, and, and the police department tries to handle it internally. So Gary Spath was firing his gun in ways that were somewhat reckless, as as a, a number of uh, officials in the police department told me, and yet the rest of the town didn't know this. And more importantly, there wasn't an, an attempt to really get some help for Gary Spath. You know, recognizing that, hey, listen, maybe you shouldn't be a street cop. Maybe you would be better as a detective or maybe something, in, you know, inside the headquarters or whatever. But someone who's out on the street handling emergencies, that might not be the kind of job that you should have. And so what we had on the night of April 10th, 1990, was this, was this meeting not only of a white cop and a black kid, but a white cop with some problems and a black kid with some problems. And so when you look at this story, there are all kinds of layers. And when you peel them back, you just can't help but, but think that, my goodness, this is a meeting that, that was just had tragedy right at the center of it. And I want to go back to when you said he had a history of pulling the trigger. Is somebody like that more of a danger to the community than someone we look for protection? Oh yeah, this is, a, this is a really serious problem. Police work is extraordinarily dangerous. I mean, try to imagine, you get a call over the radio, there's a boy with a gun, go check it out. You're by yourself, it's starting to get dark at night and you have to, you have to, you have to suddenly roll up on this scene and figure out, is this a life-threatening situation or is it something I can handle? How do I deal with this? And so when, when you sort of multiply that by police departments around the country, you can understand the kind of tension that police officers operate in. That's why I think that we, should, we really need to look at, well, exactly who becomes a police officer and what kinds of uh, evaluations do we do before they become a police officer or even in their first few years? UCLA law professor Joanna C. Schwartz answers the question on police accountability, impunity, 
and what it means for the future of policing. I think one of the most important parts of the current conversation about policing is the discussion about what we authorize and instruct police to do. The vast majority of cases that make the news with tragic outcomes begin as traffic stops or uh, stops or interactions for very minor conduct, selling loose cigarettes, or perhaps uh, using a um, fake $20 bill, having a taillight out. Um, and those kinds of interactions can quickly and do and have quickly uh, turned into uh, tragic events with people dying. And I think that the most exciting and important conversation that's being had around policing and police reform now is the question about whether armed police should in fact be uh, doing traffic stops and um, getting involved in uh, interventions for people with mental health crises. I think that, that for many police, uh, some of that work, particularly um, working with people who have mental health crises is, is not what they want to be doing um, on their on the job. Uh, and it doesn't seem like communities want them to be doing that on the job either. So I, I think that those conversations, if we could if we could end uh, traffic stops or or a vast majority of the traffic stops that are happening for non um, criminal conduct uh, and get more mental health professionals involved in addressing calls for mental health crises, I think that um, that change would be the most dramatic uh, that we could enact to, to change policing and uh, police violence. Senator Cory Booker was once mayor of Newark, New Jersey, also known as Brick City. The Newark, New Jersey Police Department had an accountability problem. When then-Mayor Cory Booker took over, he implemented change. So I was, I was the mayor of the city of Newark and inherited a police department that had a lot of histories of challenges and problems. And one of the first things we said we were going to work on was police accountability. And we were not moving as quick as maybe the ACLU and others thought, but we thought we were making progress. And it wasn't until the Department of Justice came in and did a level of data collection and analysis that we didn't even have the capacity to do that we saw that the traditions, the awful traditions in our police department were still thriving under my leadership. And we ended up taking a lot more sophisticated measures to address them. So it, it, I was a mayor of a black mayor, uh, the head of a majority black city with a majority black city council. And yet we hadn't gotten to the, to the roots of real substantive change, even though we had all the right intentions. Um, and so that's the difficulty of this problem. It is very deeply rooted in, in, in systems that often are doing things that don't empower officers, don't hold them accountable, um, uh, don't, don't give them the training they need and everything from implicit racial bias all the way to uses of force that we should be doing uh, as a matter of course in our society. So th this is not an easy issue. And I'll tell you, we, we, we've learned things in, in President Obama's 21st Century Task Force. We saw 
that the stressors of police officers, things that make them snap, we could actually create predictive analytics. Uh, there was a horrible incident in Texas where a police officer sat on a black teenage girl at a, after a pool party using just offensive levels of force. And I remember I felt uh, a lot of ill will towards this officer. It was wrong and uh, what, they, what they had done. But as the Obama task force saw that that officer had a number of the predictable triggers that can happen to a police officer. Um, and, and we had no systems of intervention to help that officer before they sort of broke our, 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 our community norms, I would say the law. And so there's a lot that we should be focused on as a society, knowing that we have this problem. And as a guy who was a mayor overseeing a police force, um, I would see, you know, I, we had a hostage incident in Newark and I, I was talking to my police, my police director over the phone. He was on the scene. I was on the phone heading there. And then I hear gunshots go off. And then I hear my officers yelling, go, go, go. They run into a building, no situational awareness where shooting was going on. They ascended the stairs. And as I've been told, they see the woman had shot herself. And then they see the bed uh, or crib, I can't remember exactly which, in which the, a pillow had been placed over a child and the child had been shot. And now these officers go to vainly try to save a child with a gunshot wound, a baby, uh, with its lifeless body, the gruesomeness of all of that. Then they go home that night to their family, whether there's trouble or, or not. And then they go right back to work then they do a traffic stop. Then that person exercises their First Amendment rights and tells that officer what they think of them. And then that officer snaps. So I, I, I will never justify an officer's uh, um, um, use of force problems. But I will say that we have a system of policing that is not serving us, where we are putting our officers in conditions or asking them to do things that they're not often trained or supported to do. We are not confronted as a society the persistence of implicit racial bias. We don't even have filters to stop, appropriate filters to stop those officers who have done bad things from repeating to do bad things. They often will leave one department and go to another. I could go on and on and on about the, the grandeur of the urgencies of things that we should be doing that better supports police officers better protects communities, creates systems of accountability. But the thing I just want to most say right now is we are not stepping up as a society to confront this crisis that we have. And we shouldn't be vilifying officers or other individuals. This is not a time where we should be talking about blame. This is a time that we as a society should be taking greater responsibility uh, for how we conduct public safety and often realize that what public safety isn't another police officer on another street corner. Sometimes public safety, in fact, the most effective types of public safety is when we invest in each other, when we invest in mental health, that of officers, that of our society as a whole, when we invest in systems that better protect us and create the outcomes we desire. And, and that's difficult work, but I'm committed to it. And we as a society need to take a greater, make a greater commitment to that as well. Attorney Peter Harvey is a past attorney general of the state of New Jersey and a former federal prosecutor. He discusses how the officer in the Philip Pinnell case 
had a questionable history of pulling out his weapon and also firing that weapon. Gary Spath did have some history of pulling his weapon. And I think sometimes officers resort to pulling their weapon as, as a first resort rather than a last one. And a lot of that has to do with, first of all, who's being hired. You have some officers being hired on police departments that are scared. And officers who don't have the same level of respect for certain areas of the city's community as they do for their own neighborhood. And officers who don't even live in the city, who don't like most of the people who do live in the city. And so I am a, a proponent that cities need to take a hard look at their intake procedure for police officers. That is not a job for everybody. There are some people who are too scared. There are some people who are too aggressive. And there are people who are poorly educated who become police officers. I don't think you should be a high school grad and be allowed to become a police officer. I think you need at least two years of college uh, with a requirement that you obtain your other two years of college and become a four-year college degree within a specified period of time. Hey, listen, the initial NFL contract is four years with a fifth-year option. Why can't we have police officers coming onto the force on probation for a three to four year period where we get to observe how they behave in their various rotations to determine whether or not they can be good at this job, whether they have the patience to do it, whether they have the service focus to do it, whether they have the temperament to do it, um, whether or not in their private lives they engage in racist behavior or sexist behavior or they're a member of extremist groups or participate with people who have extremist views. Uh, and I'm trying to be as neutral as I can. Uh, we want the best people because police officers see us at our worst and they have to respond to situations where they're asked to make very quick judgments and we don't need dumb people being police officers racist people being police officers, mean-spirited people being police officers, people who were former bullies in high school being police officers. We just shouldn't have it. Attorney Anya Bidwell works with the Institute for Justice. Anya is one of the leaders of the Institute's project on immunity and accountability. Through this project, she works to promote judicial engagement and ensure that government officials are held to account when they violate individuals' constitutional rights. She speaks to us about qualified immunity. In terms of standards of accountability, um, I think back to uh, my mother and uh, me not going to that police department for help, right? And that was because we were actually more afraid of police than we were afraid of the guy who stole the purse. And that was because we knew that police felt that nothing they can do to us would actually um, make them accountable or make them pay for what they did, right? So accountability is extremely important and it's extremely important for uh, police officers as well as you know prison guards and mayor and uh, school superintendents and folks who work for the government to know that if they um, act in a way that violates people's constitutional rights, that's going to um, you know, present a problem for them and that they would have to answer for their actions. So creating a system in which 
that happens would uh, be a great thing to have. Uh, removing qualified immunity uh, actually would be such a step, right? And a lot of folks say, oh, when it comes to police officers, you know, we don't want them to be second guessing when they're acting in the split second type of a situation. So qualified immunity is necessary for that reason, right? And uh, to that, I say that they are already protected by the Fourth Amendment itself and the reasonableness standard within the Fourth Amendment, right? In fact, the New York Times two days ago had a front page story. And I was just fascinated by that because it was a front page story about a 1989 Supreme Court case, right? And that story actually said, you know, officers protected for split second decision making, right? And what the New York Times was referring to was actually this case, Graham versus Connor, that had nothing to do with qualified immunity, really. It was all about, you know, what does it mean for an officer to behave reasonably? And what does it mean for an officer to violate the Fourth Amendment? And the Supreme Court basically said, we're not going to be second guessing split second decision making, right? Officers are acting in tough circumstances and we understand that and we're not gonna be sitting here in our robes saying that they should have done something different. The legal team for Gary Spath was able to convince a jury that he acted reasonably, and the prosecution was unable to prove the charge of manslaughter, even though he had fired his weapon under questionable circumstances in the past. The problem with Gary Spath is that there were, there were warning signals that he, this was a problem. There were other officers in the department who told me afterwards that they knew exactly when they heard that someone had shot somebody, they knew who that was. They knew it was Gary because they knew he had had this history of using his gun inappropriately when he shouldn't have. And, 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 and I blame the police department, but I also blame, I think, our, our, the larger society because we don't really offer that much help to cops who are you know, who are sending off signals that they're in, that there may be some trouble with how they conduct themselves. And do you think the situation would have been different if another police officer had approached Philip? You know, all these years later, Brittany, sadly, I, I, I do. I, I think it would have been entirely different. And I'll tell you why. You know, uh, there was another police officer who showed up that night. He, 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 was, he, he was in the area and he heard the call on the radio and he said, Gary, I'll, I'll, I'll back you up, essentially. And he showed up as well. He didn't fire his gun, but Gary did. And I, I can think of other officers who were on the department who have told me they wouldn't have fired their gun. They might have done something different. But in this case, Spath fired his gun. As we move forward and explore what has changed since the Pinnell shooting, we find ourselves in Camden, New Jersey, where the Camden Police Department has been recognized for its community-based policing efforts. Dan Keeshan, the Director of Public Affairs for the Camden County Police Department, explains. Working together with residents in the city, um, not being an, an us-first-them type of scenario, and how you get there is by working with residents and, and ultimately making the kind of deposits that what was commonly referred to as, as community policing, um, which is, I think, somewhat of an outdated, almost an outdated description of how we, we, you know, actively police in the community. But 
ultimately it's it's working you know hand in hand with organizations with neighbors with residents and doing that by actually getting police and officers out of their car um, putting cops into neighborhoods um, not to um, you know basically not to aggressively work on um, you know working towards solving minor crimes or, or taking care of quality of life issues but but actually to um, integrate themselves within the community, acclimate themselves to the neighborhoods, acclimate themselves to the individuals that live there, and then, in that regard, start having a conversation and a dialogue. And I think these are really simple concepts and concepts that I think we we took for granted some years ago. And then, you know, moving forward to the the seventies and eighties, we looked at officers getting back into patrol cars, rolling the windows up and just running from call to call. Um, in fact, it was, it was primarily that way uh, before we took over the Camden Police Department, um, or I should say before we stood up the new county police department was that officers would just really go from call to call. And, you know, when it got really bad and there were, there were financial difficulties and layoffs that took place, they were they were stacked up. The, the second you get into the building and into your car, you were going to go from one violent crime to another. COVID has changed the game as well. It's really, you know, we've, we've really gone from, um, you know, zero to 60 in regards to getting officers out to food distributions. They're happening on a weekly basis. They're, they're adopting families, you know, whether it is food distribution, whether it is uh, working with Sister Helen Cole to get diapers out to, uh, you know, individuals in need in the community, um, or, or just standing, you know, standing as a guardian in a known drug set area to disrupt narcotics distribution because we're, we're getting complaints or calls. And, and again, not going out and creating a, you know, putting a task force together and, and arresting everybody that's going to be out on the corner buying and selling but just putting one stationary officer on that corner. Um, those are the types of things I think that are, are helpful. I think they build relationships. I think they build credibility in the community. I think one of the things that, that right now police officers all over the country could, could use a little bit of, of help with is, is credibility in, in communities um, that are, are predominantly minority and communities that have been over-policed for a number of years. Rachel Harmon, former federal prosecutor and current professor at the University of Virginia School of Law, has written the first casebook on the laws that govern police conduct. She spoke to us about the difficulties in prosecuting police officers. Many communities are demanding justice with respect to police shootings, and understandably so. And often what they mean by justice is criminal prosecution. Now, I think we can focus too much on criminal prosecution. Um, as I said, I think that's an individualistic rather than an institutional response. But there are real roadblocks when criminal prosecution is appropriate. First of all, a lot of times when we're looking at a really egregious police shooting, it doesn't necessarily violate the law. So, for example, um, the law usually allows police officers to use force when they feel reasonably afraid for their own safety. But sometimes they contribute to the circumstances that make them feel afraid. And those don't always get incorporated into the consideration of whether they broke the law. 
If you remember Tamir Rice, who was shot by a Cleveland police officer a few years ago, um, the officers believed that Tamir might have a gun and they drove up within a few feet of him, got out of the car. At that point, almost anything that Tamir did with his hands could look like a threat to the safety of the officers because they believed he was armed. And they ended up shooting him almost instantaneously. Um, when the law evaluates that shooting, it doesn't consider the fact that the, they never should have driven up so close and that they made it almost inevitable. So one problem is that the law doesn't always criminalize things we think are wrong. A second problem is that even when police violence violates the law, that can be very difficult to prove. It's hard to disprove that an officer felt fear. And investigators, prosecutors, and juries often give officers the benefit of the doubt. When we think about police accountability, we should really be thinking about three things. Officers need to face employment consequences when they break policy or violate the law. Departments need to be transparent and responsive to communities, including members of the communities who don't always get hurt. And individuals who are wronged by officers or departments need to have legal remedies available to them. Right now, all three of those mechanisms of accountability are pretty broken, and we could fix them. Um, there are a lot of legal reforms that could help us along the way. Attorney Peter Harvey was the first African-American to serve as New Jersey's Attorney General. He worked for the state of New Jersey during the Philip Pinnell case. He oversaw this trial, and he saw the many flaws, the same flaws that are in many of the trials where black men and women are shot by police officers. As a special assistant and former federal prosecutor, um, I um, was asked to participate uh, in the underlying investigation in the aftermath of the shooting. The evidence was still being gathered. Uh, Reverend Al Sharpton had come over from New York, was acting as one of the representatives of a number of the witnesses to the shooting because these witnesses had been interviewed by Teaneck police officers, some of whom were themselves witnesses. Uh, some of these witnesses had been interviewed by the Bergen County Prosecutor's Office. And Reverend Sharpton stopped all interviews of the witnesses whom he represented. And he said he would no longer allow them to cooperate until someone other than the Bergen, the acting Bergen County prosecutor took over the case. Now, New Jersey has not district attorneys or state's attorneys, but they're called prosecutors. They're 21 for the 21 counties. They serve five years. They're nominated by the governor, confirmed by the Senate. If there's a vacancy, uh, the attorney general generally sends up an assistant attorney general or deputy attorney general to act as an acting prosecutor. That's what was the case in Bergen County. There was an acting prosecutor there who actually was a deputy attorney general, in this case, an assistant attorney general, higher level, more experienced lawyer. So this person, the office was under the supervision of the attorney general. So New Jersey has essentially the federal system in the way that the United States Attorney General oversees the United States attorneys, the New Jersey Attorney General oversees county prosecutor offices. And um, Reverend Sharpton's position was that his people, 
or the people whom he represented at the time would not be permitted to cooperate any further with the Bergen County Prosecutor's Office and the TNAC police. And he wanted an independent person or persons to take over the investigation of this shooting and entered uh, at that point, the Attorney General Robert Del Tufo entered the picture. I was asked to go up to TNAC to meet with Reverend Sharpton and, with, and to meet with some of the witnesses to see if they would cooperate with the Attorney General's office. They agreed to do so. And that is when I entered the picture as the witnesses uh, were in the process of being interviewed and ultimately in the process of being prepared to present their testimony before the grand jury. And in this case, it would have been a statewide grand jury. The attorney general had the authority to go before a statewide grand jury, not a grand jury sitting in Bergen County. Because some of the witnesses to the, the initial chase between the police officer Spath and Philip Pinnell were kids. They were under the age of 18. They were minors. Uh, some of the other witnesses were not. Here's what I was told at the time I came into the, into the picture that Reverend Sharpton was representing some of the witnesses, uh, they were not going to cooperate with the Bergen County Prosecutor's Office or the TNAC police, that some of the, these witnesses had been interviewed multiple times, which I myself thought was a mistake because that's just not a good idea. Think about it in the context of a sexual assault or domestic violence investigation. There's no good reason to interview the survivor, the victim of the sexual assault, or the domestic violence multiple times, it almost seems to be um, an invitation to develop inconsistent statements to erode the credibility of the complaining witness. So that's just a mistake. I was also told that uh, members of the TNAC police who themselves might be witnesses were participating or present during these interviews. Another no-no, uh, witnesses should not be in the room while other witnesses are being interviewed. And they certainly shouldn't be participating in interviewing uh, witnesses. And I was told that uh, the community was starting to get very angry, uh, that people had the impression in Teaneck that uh, there was going to be a whitewash of the matter. There were demonstrations in Teaneck. And I was asked to go up and see if Reverend Sharpton would allow the witnesses to cooperate with the Attorney General's office. And uh, also to help gather the evidence to evaluate it and ultimately present the case to a grand jury if it was warranted. So I drove up to TNAC from Trenton and I met with Reverend Sharpton and I met with uh, a couple of the witnesses and I told them that um, the Attorney General had taken over the investigation and that it would be fair it would be impartial and we would do our best to get to the truth of the matter as the boys were walking to a schoolyard they passed through a neighborhood an african-american resident looked out of his front door and saw a boy who turned out to be philip pinnell showing a gun to his friends the resident called the police and the police dispatched an officer to check it out that officer was gary spath another officer arrived moments later at this point, Philip and his friends had arrived at the schoolyard. Peter Harvey continues with the information his office uncovered. Officer Spath fancied himself as an athlete because he played basketball and other games sometimes with some of these kids. But he couldn't catch Philip Pinnell, and he chased him from that schoolyard through a residential community. 
And at some point he pulled his gun and he fired and he shot Philip Pinnell in the back, spun him around and that shot killed him. As we look for solutions from the shooting of Philip Pinnell to the murder of George Floyd, the Reverend Al Sharpton has many ideas on how the police can better protect American communities. I think it's going to take first laws and enforcement of the laws because we've had even bad, black cops be bad, bad cops. Or uh, the Sean Bell case in Queens where they shot this young man, killed him on the uh, night before his wedding. Shot at him 51 times. Two of those three cops were black. So I think first you need new and stronger laws and enforcement of the laws. Secondly, diversity matters but diversity all the way up to the top, just not officers on the street. I think the legacy of TNEG is the reality is that policing and black community and the police issue is not an inner city urban issue. It's a suburban issue, it's an American issue. And I think that the legacy of, of TNEG is it was the first high profile suburban community to be rocked with this, with the killing, with the rock throwing, with the marching, and then with the Gary's uh, path not held accountable. I think it took away from uh, suburban America that that's not us, that's how they act in urban centers. We behave differently. It took that uh, veneer away, and it took for black Americans and man, if I could just get out the hood and get me a nice crib in a place like Teaneck, I can get away from all of this. And you find out you can get a nice crib, but you're not going to be away from it. So I think it kind of made all of us have to deal with the reality that the problem wasn't our size of our house or the quality of our wardrobe. The problem was how we really conduct governing and accountability. Senator Cory Booker is putting his words into action as he works with Congresswoman Karen Bass to help pass the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act of 2021. Even if we pass the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, it'll go a long way in creating a more safe environment in our nation, but it won't go as far as we need to go. And, and that's why I, I just feel the sense of urgency for us as a society to step up and do more. I was a new mayor in 2006, sat down with the head of the FBI for the state of New Jersey, where he was giving me counterterrorism uh, reports and gang, their gang work uh, on their gang task force. And after a, a sobering picture about the challenges of violence in, in my city, I looked at him and I asked the question to him very purposefully to see how he would answer. I said, well, how do we solve these problems? And he looks at me and with wisdom says, we don't solve these problems. And what he was meaning was we law enforcement, we the FBI do not solve these problems. They are symptoms of something deeper going on in our society. And so I think that if we are all really care about public safety, we will not just create better systems of accountability, transparency, um, more measures, better training. I can go through all the urgent things I know need to be done in policing, but we will begin as a society to, to, to take a step back and ask ourselves why um, we have the largest prison population on the planet Earth, where one out of every three incarcerated women 
on the planet Earth or in the United States of America. Why we've seen since those years where this incident, horrific incident happened in Teaneck, we were building from, from around the early 90s until the time I was mayor of the city of Newark, we were building a new prisoner jail every 10 days. We, we, we have something seriously wrong with a society that professes freedom, but incarcerates one out of every four incarcerated people on the planet Earth. So I, I, I feel a sense of urgency in the larger context, um, not that policing and our real policing issues um, are one component of a larger problem within our society of, of, um, of broken ideals of justice and criminal justice in particular. Senator Booker continues on to talk about the systemic problem of black males being killed at a higher rate than white males in the United States. Well, black men are killed at a rate that's higher than, than white Americans. That is factual and, and real. It's not the fullness of the story. People with mental illness, while blacks are killed two to three times, if I remember my data correctly, significantly more than whites, people with mental illnesses are killed at about 12 times the rates of a typical white American. And, and so why is all of this? Well, we clearly have a problem in our country of implicit racial bias, where in every element of the criminal justice system, we see unconscious bias playing a role. Blacks, black boys are perceived to be older than white boys are. They're perceived to be more of a threat. Uh, I wrote a book where I quoted the head of the FBI for our nation, talking very honestly about if he's walking down a street and sees a small group of black boys on one corner and a small group of white boys, implicitly he sees uh, um, uh, the threat. It's not a racist, but he has implicit racial bias like most of us do, um, that, that, that the kids on one corner may be more of a threat. And, 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 and so we know that these are issues we have to deal with in our system. We see them in sentencing. We see them in something most Americans don't know about called the station house adjustment. It, you know, with some kids, and I saw this in Harrington Park on senior cut day when some of my friends uh, broke some laws and got caught and the right thing happened. They got, you know, released to their parents. But black kids don't get that same, uh, often don't get that same station house adjustment. We see it in, in, in involvements of police in, in grade schools and the disparate impact and discipline that black boys will get versus white boys. But, but it's wider than that, because again, the treatment of LGBTQ Americans, trans Americans, the treatment of Americans who are struggling with mental illness, all of these things should arise our, our, our serious concerns. Sexual assault victims, I mean, hell, uh, over 80% of the women we incarcerate in America are survivors of sexual trauma. And so all of these are issues that, that to me, scream with moral urgency for us to address it. If we are to be who we say we are, a nation that believes in equal justice under the law. And the fact that we don't have a sense of urgency, that we haven't made manifest that sense of urgency in our society is really, really problematic to me. And I think it necessitates all of us to not be bystanders or not just to mark uh, those moments in history, whether it's 1990 in Teaneck, whether it's uh, the Rodney King beating in California in the night, in a year or two later, whether it's uh, the names we all know, uh, uh, Eric Garner, uh, uh, George Floyd, I think we could all go through them. Uh, name, people that should never have been household names, 
that are now famous for the, all the wrong reasons. We will continue to see that until we all say enough is enough and begin to do things, not just to deal with policing, but to deal with the larger issues that are infecting our, our society and, and are the challenges, frankly, um, that, that, are, that come to a society as great as ours. We are trying to show the planet that a multicultural democracy of justice, a beloved community, that we can make that uh, 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 that we can show the world that what, what's possible. And we know what's possible when hidden figures sit at the same table as white NASA astronauts. We can defy gravity and do things that make humanity. Set. We know that from Harvard case studies to um, McKinsey, one of our big consulting companies, all show diverse teams are stronger teams. We know what's possible, but we are failing to deal with the obstacles that are still preventing us from having the full blessings and benefits of, of this multicultural democracy when we confront the unfinished business of injustice that still haunts and wounds our society. United States Congresswoman Karen Bass is spearheading one of the most transformative laws in policing in the United States. The George Floyd Justice and Policing Act is the law that she feels will pass. She has very strong feelings about this law and she has very strong feelings about police accountability. Well, last year I had the honor of serving as the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, as well as the chair of the Subcommittee on Crime in Judiciary. And in the capacity of both of those positions, Speaker Nancy Pelosi asked me after the murder of George Floyd, if I would take the lead in making sure the legislation was developed and passed out of the House. And so I did that. This is an issue that I have worked on for several decades. And the reason it is transformative legislation, number one, is because it's the first time that a legislation around policing is going to be passed into law. And I do feel confident that we will put a bill on President Biden's desk. But the bill holds police officers accountable. So there's two parts of the bill. One, qualified immunity. Right now, officers have immunity from civil lawsuits. And when Derek Chauvin was, um, had his knee on George Floyd's neck. If you remember, he's looking at the camera. He knows he's being photographed. He doesn't seem to have a care in the world because in his mind, probably he was thinking, I don't have to worry about getting prosecuted and I don't have to worry about getting sued. We wanna change that. In addition to changing qualified immunity, which will enable people to sue officers, we also lower the standard to prosecute an officer. Now we have seen over the years, video after video of people being killed by police or brutalized by police, and they never get arrested or the rare occasions when they get arrested, the cases always fall apart and they're never really prosecuted. And that's because the standard to prosecute police officers is so high, no one, is ever able to uh, sustain the charges. No prosecutor is ever able to really sustain the charges. Those two pieces alone is why it's transformative. But then we also call to call on raising the standards for policing. So people would probably be shocked to know 
that we have 18,000 police departments in the United States and there's no national standards. Police departments do not have to be accredited. And so chokeholds might be okay in one area, not in another. Uh, what's required to be a police officer might be one thing in one area and something else in another. We think there should be national standards. We want to raise the profession of policing to be just like many other professions. And then finally, the bill provides grants for communities to begin to re-envision what communities need in order to be safe. And so all of those components together make the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act the most transformative legislation that has come through Congress. And I can say forever, but I don't know, maybe 50 years ago there was a bill that I'm not aware of. After over 30 years since Philip Pinnell was shot, George Floyd had to lay in the street with a knee on his neck for over nine minutes. And now we get laws that will be passed to change this. Congresswoman Karen Bass goes on to tell the provisions of this new law. Well, the accountability part is the qualified immunity and lowering the standards for prosecution. Both of those uh, could have prevented George Floyd from being killed if the officer was afraid of being sued and afraid of being prosecuted. Maybe he would have thought about keeping his knee on his neck uh, for so long. And then in terms of Breonna Taylor, Breonna Taylor was killed because of no-knock warrants that required very little evidence as to why the warrant was needed. So in our bill, we raised the standards for, um, for policing in that we eliminate no-knock. So no-knocks cannot occur. Uh, in other words, you would have to have a warrant under very strenuous uh, conditions. Uh, Chokeholds are eliminated from, uh, in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And so a person cannot put a knee on someone's neck for nine minutes or for one minute. Uh, both of those measures would have prevented George Floyd's death and Breonna Taylor's death. And let me add in another one, Tamir Rice. Part of the bill calls for a registry of bad officers. So Tamir Rice, who was killed in Ohio was a 12-year-old child. The officer jumped out of the car, shot him within seconds, and that officer had been fired from another department, one, because they felt he had a propensity for violence, and two, because uh, they thought he was unstable. Well, if there had been a registry, that department could have done a background check and found out why he had been fired and not hired him. After years of police shootings, after years of unnecessary force, after years of no prosecution, after years of photos and videos of African-Americans and others being beaten by police officers, shot by police officers, chokeholds by police officers, and kneeled on by police officers. Why now? Why now do we need to reform the police? Congresswoman Karen Bass goes on to answer that question. Well, now is the best time because we keep getting traumatized by seeing video after video after video. 
In just the last week alone, we saw the video of uh, Dante Wright. Uh, we saw the video of uh, Adam Toledo, 13-year-old boy who was killed. The officer said he had a gun in his hand, but that's not what the videotape showed. We saw the videotape of the military, of the soldier in uniform being disrespected, opened the door, put pepper spray in his face. This, every time there's a video of somebody being brutalized or killed, you get traumatized over and over and over again, and especially African-Americans and Latinos who are the subject of this violence from police and who know that there is an extreme double standard. I was looking at a video the other day of a white gentleman in his car. He's pulled over. The police pull up next, uh, walk up next to him and he pulls a gun on them. He pulls a gun on them and the officers tell him to put the gun down. He said, no, it's my second amendment right. He refused to put the gun down. He drove the car away. The officers never bothered to shoot him. And so seeing the double standard illustrated over and over and over again is a constant source of trauma. And that is why we need to act. We need to act now. We started our journey in Teaneck, New Jersey with the killing of Philip Pinnell. We ended in Washington, D.C. with Congresswoman Karen Bass. Although half the people shot and killed by police are white, black Americans are shot at a disproportionate rate. They account for less than 13% of the U.S. population, but are killed by police at more than twice the rate of white Americans. Now we will explore the freedom fighters, the young people who are putting their lives on the line to change these outcomes, the professors that are teaching the truth about history and philosophies surrounding these shootings and this police violence and how we can overcome it. 